I would I used to call us a restartup, right? We were a company that had hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and was profitable. Um, and yet we had to behave like we were we were a startup because we were entering all new parts of the media landscape. Welcome to Media Voices, everybody. We take a look at everything that's going on in news, media, magazines, everything over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Hooster. Oh, 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 big news. You've um, turned into a goat. <laughs> so. Anyway, um, we're opening pre-orders for Grub Street. The Grub Woo. Street journal will be available to pre-order on Wednesday. Um, March the 1st uh, go to grubstreetjournal.com and it'll take you straight to the order page your Ta-da! magazine for people who love magazines it's a magazine for people who make magazines as well as love magazines yeah actually Peter can you can you tell people what the first the theme of the first issue is yeah what kind of idiots still make magazines as a thesis statement for the uh, for the magazine I think it's pretty solid well, everyone laughs at the question and then nods their head and thinks, yeah, why am I doing this? But then they go on and explain for 20 minutes why they're doing it. That's the beauty of it. And that extract you just heard is from my interview with Bonnie Kintzer, who is CEO of Trusted Media Brands. Um, that includes brands like Fail Army, Family Handyman and Reader's Digest. I think, depending on which one of those names you recognise, probably speaks to how old you are. I'm on Fail um, Army all the time. <laughs> I've never, I've, well, I've never heard of Fail Army. Uh, so we talked about the opportunities she saw to turn around the company when it was facing bankruptcy in 2013, how the business has weathered some of the storms of the past decade, and why she thinks it's vital to focus on where the audiences are regardless of platform algorithms, which I think probably leads quite nicely into our main story, right? Well, as Esther said in her intro there, uh, we are going to be talking about platforms here because the spectre of a news platforms payment deal has raised its head yet again. I feel like we spoke about this endlessly last year, uh, dissecting the Australia-type deal, that's what everyone kept calling it, by which platforms like Google and Meta will pay publishers directly for the privilege of including them in search results. So a bill under consideration in Canada is going to require platforms, well, like Google and Meta, to negotiate payments with publishers when they link to their content. The snappily titled Bill C-18, or the Online News Act, is modelled on legislation that passed in Australia in 2021. And in response, and this is why we're talking about this right now, Google, which opposes that, surprisingly, is testing blocking news entirely in a small number of searches. And it's set to be joined by Meta, which is going to do the same as well. So how enthusiastic are we to talk about this? <laughs> and this is it seems to be an issue that really divides in like media analysts like us. Like you you are either firmly in the camp that this is the most stupid idea you've heard on the planet, or you're all for it because you know news companies get money. Um and I just I'm tr- I'm really trying really hard to understand the opposing argument for this, but to me, it's just like Google provides, you know, millions and millions and millions and millions of people. It, it, it provides them as traffic to publisher websites. Why should they have to pay for the privilege? I think that over the course of the past two years, we have looked in depth at the the arguments of people who are proponents of these deals, and the the issue is. Even the people you said there that it divides it, but I think that 
even some of the people who, like us, are relatively opposed to the foundations of this and the reasons behind it, do recognise that there is a need for funding. Oh, go on, I start. I can see, I can, okay, I can I see you like, psyching yourself up for a big round. I will say, again, in Google's defence, what they've done through the Google News Initiative, especially, you know, you look at some of the things they've done for local news and they are putting their money where their mouth is and they're saying, we don't think this link tax is the right idea, mm. but we are going to fund you to help you make more sustainable business models. And... The number of times I've spoken to people and they said, you know, the, the GNI and the courses have made such a difference. Peter will get to you because <laughs> for the benefit of, of the listener, Peter was making <laughs> some uh, faces and rolling his eyes quite like to the point where I thought his head was going to fall off there. Okay, I don't disagree with what Esther's saying or in principle. However, <laughs> to say that Google is putting real money into the news ecosystem is bullshit. It's basically a PR budget for Google. And, you know, you can look at that a million different ways and, and I'm absolutely, I get, oh, and I'm not undervaluing the, the uh, new Google's news initiative. I'm not undervaluing the money they spend, but it's a PR budget. If you compare it to how much money they make everywhere else. So to me, that's not the point. The point is this fundamentally misunderstands the nature of the internet. Mm. You know, it's distributed content, right? Now, if yeah. you want to protect your your business model, you're going to have to do stuff that adds value, and it's got to be about paywalls, gated content. It's got to be about registered users. It's got to be about relationships. It's got all sorts of stuff that gets done on the other end, not at the search end. This is a bit like asking ITV to pay Persil because someone <laughs> buys soap powder, right? So yeah. why then do we think that there is this antipathy among some commentators? We, we, we were talking about some individuals before who are, you know, ardent proponents of this or fierce, fiercely opposed to it. Oh, it's, it's... Google's not taking any money from us, right? No. You could argue that Google is taking money from News Corp and Reach and the bigger publishers and in Canada and Australia, because they're taking advertising revenue from brands that would used to advertise in, in those places. I'm, I'm not yeah, saying that's that bullshit. I believe that's that. Bullshit. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying that's the argument that, that, that there's... I mean, I've, I've seen I've seen the monopoly argument come up a, a couple of times, but again, that's you know that's being dealt with with various legislations in America. And also, um, I think th this is all coming at a time when, you know, we just touched on this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Bing and Google are now looking very, very seriously at um, zero, AI, zero yeah. click searches and using yeah. AI to surface those. So it's like, well, and, and actually, I, this is where I completely agree with the stance Google is taking here. They're saying, well, if, if you want us to pay you for this, we're going to take your links off. And the only people that hurts are you. I mean, we've, we've seen previous tests of this, right? And it was, I think there's this fantastic wide article, which we will link to, and it sums all this up. There's a fantastic point made in that, which is basically saying Australia was probably the first, the only nation that could try that because of the strength of News Corp out there. Now, elsewhere, if this happens, there's a reputational cost to Google and Meta, potentially, or whoever their successors are when, you know, they no longer hold the dominance uh, in search. Ultimately, fundamentally, in the short term, it's hurting publishers more. And Canada, that's a five-week trial, but they're making a point, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. They're just saying, okay, well, we'll stop putting news in search for these amount of people for this amount of time and <laughs> tell us how you like it. And I, I think what was particularly notable about this week is that it's the first time I've seen um, 
Justin Trudeau actually made a statement about it, which is quite rare for a leader of that that high up to actually basically bother getting involved. Um, and he he said that he thought it was a terrible mistake for Google to block news. But it's just one of these. I, this this feels like the wrong thing to be talking to Google about. We need to be talking to Google and Bing and all the others doing all the chatbot AI stuff about how they compensate publishers for the work they're scraping. That is actually using publishers' resources and publishers' content for something that will directly benefit them and the, the, the platforms in another way. Whereas the link tax, to Peter's point, is just how the internet works. Mm. But this also, I feel my soul in my body. I'm talking <laughs> about this crap because there's no easy answer. And there's... The answers definitely don't lie with people like News Corp getting their way. Which is, unfortunately, what we've seen in Australia. There's That wide article, again, does bring up the fact that it is Nine, it is News Corp, it is the bigger players who have entered into these deliberately obfuscated and occluded deals with the platforms for money. And smaller publishers, even the ones who are joining together for collective bargaining are not getting anywhere near that. So one of the key arguments in favour of a deal like this is, oh, it will help the smaller publishers, it will help regional publishers. I can yeah, People I will cite that. like one or two studies, but for the most part, where is that money going? It's certainly not going to them. You know, and I think that's the, their argument. There's a quote here from CEO of Canadian News, Site Logic. He says it's a necessary evil in order to maintain balance balance in Canada's media ecosystem. It doesn't maintain balance. It benefits the big players. Mm. I think the more accurate statement in our notes is the one from Paul Deegan, who's president and chief executive of News Media Canada, who says, this is not a magic bullet. This is a badly needed Band-Aid. It's treating a symptom. It's not treating a symptom. It's hiding a symptom. No. So I think the fundamental point this comes down to is that the people making this legislation, whether that's Australia, the UK, the US, wherever else, there are people that have barely figured out email and until we get people <laughs> in that understand Burn. the internet to try and sort out these issues uh, we're, we're going to end up in more stupid corners like this and you know the, the, the uk is next in this <laughs> that should be a regular media voices feature stupid corner <laughs> that would be genius <laughs> this week on stupid corner well we can't give it to Nadine Doris every week now because she's yeah, gone. That's true, she's gone. <laughs> Plenty of candidates taking place, Chris, <laughs> don't you worry. And now on to news and briefs. And Condé Nast has missed its revenue target for the year by less than a single percentage point year on year. Now it's a quinter right up so in the annoying. <laughs> I know, yeah, right. Can you see it like ticking up and just not making it? But what I thought was notable here is that it's going big. It's making a lot of noise about its e-commerce revenue strategy. We can actually probably talk about um that in Esther's nib as well. But what I thought was kind of interesting is that they're saying advertising revenue was down a lot more than expected. But when Sarah Fisher for Axios reported last August, she pointed out that its digital advertising was actually up 13% and was expected to contribute significantly to their overall revenue. So what's happened there? Is that just a bit of a trim in terms of luxury advertising budget because of Cosy Libs? Or is that something more fundamental? That must be something else because I'm, I'm sure I read something in press cassette a couple of weeks ago about the fact that uh, the luxury advertising market has actually remained really strong. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. I don't quite know where that's come from. They're, they're going to just blame. They were going to do exactly what you said. They're going to blame the recession and I'm making the little bunny ears because we don't know really what that recession is. I think the digital ad market particularly has changed since, since August. I think mm. that's... 
the forecast right across the board have shrunk on that one. But again, this is Esther talks about this a lot. You're still talking about real growth. It might mm. not be 13%, but it's still real growth. Okay, so I know, I apologise for this, because I know we're all really bored talking about Twitter's slow motion implosion. Um, but this story from Casey Newton in The Verge really had me start thinking, what the actual f*** is going on? Twitter's Slack system shut down last week. You know, people basically weren't doing anything. They weren't working. Um, he described, Casey Newton describes it as Twitter's equivalent of a snow day. It's like, well, there's no Slack. We can't do anything. So the story came out, it was routine maintenance, which was described as bullshit because there's no such thing as <laughs> Slack routine maintenance. Um, and then the rumour was that Twitter hadn't paid its bill, which could be true because they haven't paid other bills. Lots but of other bills. I don't think, you know, it would be more notable at this point if they had paid a bill for something yeah. since Elon took over. Well, because they, they fired everybody who can pay, pay bills, can't they? <laughs> <laughs> so then it turns out that someone just shut it down. Someone shut it <laughs> Internally, someone shut it off. Possibly because Elmo wanted to see if Twitter could work without it. And if guess he got his answer pretty quickly. The people that say he is an absolute genius are so, so, so deluded. They've been they've been shown up this year. There was... He can go in the stupid corner this week. Yeah, yeah well, he I mean, he's just got a permanent place. You know what? We'll always <laughs> reserve a stool there in, the, in that corner. But there was, I, I read this morning, actually, not to date the episode, but this is Sunday the 26th of February. And as of this morning, apparently, about 50 engineering team members were cut. We were just talking about some faults in the DM system before we started recording. Yeah. The last thing you need to do at this point is cut engineers. Anyway, he fired, he fired uh, a bunch of people last week, didn't he, for um, yeah. for the whole Joe Biden tweet thing? Because oh, Biden that was that, that was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Him. We did we didn't talk about that, but that is fantastic. Oh, nobody saw my tweets. Was pissed off though because the president of the United States tweets get more attention than yours got? That's because everybody's yeah. blocked and they're fed up of him. Anyway, yesterday he tweeted. Um, uh, oh, so I've gone and I've unblocked a lot of people because I think it's actually really important to hear criticism. Blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, you are just shit scared that everybody's blocking you. Why is he a brummy? Was that, that wasn't a brummy. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't brummy. Um, so following the news, I think it was late last year, that Zilla Bing Thorne is departing imminently as CEO of Future. And former BuzzFeed's chief operating officer and male executive John Steinberg has been named as the next CEO. He's taking over from Zilla at the start of April. Um, I, there was some chat in the media voices group about this. Uh, and I think we were all a bit like, oh, he's actually based in the US. Um, and I think that sends a really strong signal. I'll, I'll just leave that as my polite way of phrasing it. Um, it sends quite a strong signal about how seriously Future is taking its growth over the pond. <laughs> that was quite polite for me. It was politer than I was in the group. Yeah. Best of luck, John Steinberg. <laughs> We'd love to speak to you about your plans. I just find- I was surprised that their their CEO is going to be in the States because they've got so many people in the UK and if I get the growth is in the States, but if you're sat in the UK, are you thinking, hmm, what am I, chopped blood? I'm not. <laughs> Talking of media leaders, this week I spoke to Bonnie Kinzer, who is CEO of Trusted Media Brands. So before joining as CEO in 2014, she'd actually already worked with the company under its previous name as the Reader's Digest Association. So I started by asking her what changes she'd seen the brand undergo during that time. 
I started working um, with the brand actually in the early 90s as a consultant uh, and then joined the company from uh, 98 uh, till about 2007. And then I came back in 2014. So it really does span <laughs> quite a long time. And yes, I have seen many, many changes. So, I mean, in that sense, you've, you've, almost, you've almost seen the huge arc from when, I suppose, print magazines were in their heyday right through to, I don't know what you call it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I, I think it, in spite of the many changes, and I'm happy to go through some of them, one of the things I saw from the beginning of working with Reader's Digest was the continued focus on the cu customer. And that has followed through to today, all of these decades later. Um, and I think that that's why it's such a successful a brand, you know, not that many brands can say that they've celebrated their 100th birthday, but Reader's Digest always had a focus on audience. The audience, of course, back then was all print. Um, I think when I came back to the company in 2014, uh, there was not a full embracing of digital media. Uh, the magazine was really the heartbeat of the brand. Uh, and, uh, they would post one article a day online. Oh, and I just, yeah, it was stunning to me, uh, in 2014 that, that that was going on. Uh, and so, uh, we started obviously posting, uh, quite a lot more. And lo and behold, people loved it. And how interesting it is that actually the small bites of Reader's Digest are exactly what uh, web surfers want. And so uh, our traffic is at an all-time high uh, and we continue to grow because I think we, we focus on the right content for the right audience. So that is by far the biggest, uh, the biggest change in, in, in the time that I've worked with the brand. So, I mean, what part does the magazine play now? Magazine is very important. It's the fourth largest print magazine in the United States. So it's still very important and valuable to our consumers. You know, we always say you, you want to meet the consumer where they are. For some consumers, uh, print is, is a very important part of their life. It's, it's very much a lean back, uh, relax. Uh, I, sometimes I, I, when I read, you know, letters from our um, our readers, I love that they say, what a break from the news, what a break from the stress of life to sit down and read Reader's Digest, right? It's a, a magazine that celebrates the goodness of life, that reminds you that your neighbors are good people, not talking about politics, not talking about celebrities, but really here to uh, inform and entertain in, in all sorts of ways. So apart from posting more than one article a day, um, what opportunities of wider business did you see to transform it when you agreed to, to rejoin it in 2014? So I think what I saw was, um, and of course, we're, we're many brands, right? Taste of Home, Family Handyman, and now Fail Army and the Pet Collective. Um, I think what I saw was a company that really understood its audience and what kind of content that audience wanted but had not figured out how to monetize it um, more broadly. And that that's really a great opportunity because I would I used to call us a restartup, right? We were a company that had hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and was profitable. Um, and yet we had to behave like we were we were a startup because we were entering all new parts of the media landscape. 
And that's exciting. You know, it's exciting when people know your brand and love your brand. They just haven't seen you in all the different places that they, they should be able to. At an organizational level, how do you get people into that startup start mindset when the business is definitely not a startup? Well, it is a lot of communication and a lot of transparency. So um, I did share a lot of data when I got here and really explaining to people what the opportunity was and where we were winning and where we weren't. Uh, and I remember at the beginning feeling like, oh, nobody believes me. <laughs> uh, and, you know, sort of bit by bit, you know, you have to have your proof points. Uh, and I would say Esther probably took about 18 months till all of a sudden, you know, when I would be addressing the company, they would start nodding like, yeah, we're, we're doing this. Uh, and I think so much of transforming a company is you know laying out a plan doing what you say saying what you do and um being being honest about what's happening and i try to practice that today as well but obviously uh, nine years ago it was it was it was uh, a lot more intense yeah do you think consistency plays a part in that as well because I, I i sort of think of a lot of businesses like buzzfeed that struggle and they seem to almost change strategy every nine months and you sort of don't know where you are, either either an observer or an employee. I do think consistency is important. People want to know that, um, you know, they you have a plan. And even though you do need to pivot on your uh, tactics, if you will, you know, we know that for us, our, our, our raison d'etre is to create engaging video and written um content to entertain and and engage and we do that and we do that with all of our brands obviously fail army is quite different than a family handyman or a taste of home but um, all of our brands do that and that that is our mission and so while we might have to shift from uh, snap to uh, to YouTube uh, it doesn't change what what's in our heart and our soul for our audience yeah um, how did the pandemic change the business? I mean, in terms of turbulence, that was certainly for a lot of people a very turbulent couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I when when the pandemic started, of course, like everybody else, there was that terror of, you know, what does this mean? We ultimately were a big winner in the pandemic. Everyone was cooking. We have taste of home. People were not vacationing. They were doing projects around the, their house. We have uh, family handyman. People were paying attention to the birds and the flowers in their backyard. We have birds and blooms. Uh, <laughs> and people wanted to feel good about life. And we have Reader's Digest. So we did quite well. We at the beginning, you know, our big issues were you couldn't get food in the supermarket and we couldn't get our employees into the kitchens to cook and photograph. And so we had to, particularly on Taste of Home, had to really re-architect how we were doing recipe testing and photography. Uh, and then when and, and our kitchens are in Milwaukee, which is in, in Wisconsin, in the middle of the United States. Um, when we were able to reopen those offices, we had an A team and a B team so that just in case somebody on the A team got sick, the B team could continue to go into the office and create content. So that was a dramatic shift and, and stressful. I think for the other brands, we were very lucky that we had, you know, our tech was uh, was what we needed it to be to work remotely. And also in our favor, 
we were never all in the same office. Um, so we've always had multiple offices in the U.S. So we were already um, adept at working with people that we weren't physically with. So what is that all hybrid now? Or, or a mix yes, of all sorts we're of all hybrid now. And now, of course, we, we did a very big acquisition in the middle of COVID, which is something I never imagined one could do. <laughs> uh, but that was exciting to uh, fall in love with another company without meeting any human beings for a while. And then when uh, the, the two, two, me and one of my colleagues and the two principals on the other side, when we got our vaccinations, uh, we, we met in person and struck a deal. Uh, and that that was great. So, of course, now we have a very large presence in L.A. Um, all of our production studios for our video brands are there. So we're in L.A., in Milwaukee and in New York. So um, I'm in the New York City office today. And that's great. And there's probably about 30, 40 people here. But sometimes there's nobody here and people are getting their work done. We're trying to get people to come back for, uh, you know, different meetings or or collaboration um, and, and whatnot. And I think people are really responding to that. As I like to say, come back into the office for a purpose, not just to sit on your video screen uh, from your office. That That's not particularly useful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for those staff members that are more fully remote, uh, do you ever worry about, um, I suppose, longer term integration to the company culture, like from, from a management perspective? Uh, yeah, I mean, I worry about everything, Esther. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I worry. Uh, I, we, we get very high marks from our staff on onboardings. I, I, I think we have a fantastic human resource organization. And whenever we do surveys, I'm stunned at the um, at the comments that we get back. Uh, so we give people a buddy and we have a lot of materials to help them onboard. And um, we also have a mentoring program. So I think that we have done a really terrific job. I worry about, you know, what don't I know about you? You're a new person. Do you need more help here? Do you know how to ask for help? Do you know who to ask for help? So I think particularly for uh, newer and younger employees, I, I feel that it's a real lost opportunity to not not be physically with other people. Just switching again a bit to the brands that TMB is home to. Is this sort of, I suppose, parent of the brands? You've got some uh, very large, well-known brand names. You've got, you've got, you've already mentioned Reader's Digest and some of the others, um, and you've also got some much smaller ones. How do you decide what to prioritize and invest in from a from a leadership perspective? Well, each brand, you know, really has its its own plan, and we look at where the opportunity is. So. While you may not have ever heard of Fail Army, it's an extraordinarily large global streaming brand. And if you were a 23-year-old male, you probably would have heard about it. And so we look at, you know, the audiences that it's serving um, and just how much more content people are responding to. So I think for the Pet Collective and Fail Army in particular, they're two of the largest streaming brands in the U.S. Uh, and Fail Army very big globally. Um, and so we look to feed those in the ecosystems that that they participate in, uh, no different than we would look at a Taste of Home or a Family Handyman or a Reader's Digest. All all five of those brands are quite different from one another, um, and they each have different opportunities. We don't want them to all be the same, but we do want them to serve their audience in the best way possible. 
Fail army, I do actually know. I think I was just in the under 30 age bracket when all that um, uh, social media algorithms were pushing it. So um, that one I do know. I'm happy to know that, Esther. Very happy. (laughs) I did know on the um, on TMB's website, um, you you say your video first, which is obviously since the the Duke and Apt acquisition. How are you shaping the business to compete in what is quite a cutthroat and quite an expensive industry? So the reason why we love Jukin so much is that they have a very different business model. So we have people watching videos 24 hours a day in India, in Romania, and in Los Angeles. And they are looking for the best viral videos, both for sharing as well as for any of our shows, whether it's on streaming or on social. And so they immediately connect with creators. um, And we've paid out well over $30 million dollars. Um, in, in creator fees, because when we monetize uh, that video, let's say in a licensing opportunity, we share that that revenue with the creator. So we have a great reputation. So it's not the same as creating a high what you call high production value, but it is uh, it is content that consumers really love. So if you're going to watch um, Fail Army video. Um, for an hour, you're excited to watch the UGC that we're that we're delivering to you. That relationship with creators is quite interesting because I feel like that's that's an area that a lot of other, um, not necessarily publishers, but certainly accounts and social media platforms have exploited. Uh, so it's just quite interesting that you you do have that emphasis on licensing and paying them. Correct, and we always have. It really is the backbone of of our video business. Um, while we do create some original content, of course, and, and Taste of Home and Family Handyman have always created uh, their own content, a, a big part of the Jukin and the UGC environment is is to be working with creators. So um, we couldn't we couldn't do it without them. Uh, and so it's an important part of the fabric. And like you say, it's not affordable otherwise. So, uh, you know, we, we do want to make money and um, that's an important way for us to manage the business smartly. Yeah. You, you've got the wider TMB umbrella. How does that sort of strand of all the viral videos and, and the very much the video first strategy sit alongside um, more legacy brands like Reader's Digest, which has got that really strong print history? I suppose, are, are they, do they operate very separately or can you see them integrating and sharing a lot more in the future? Yeah, they're all integrated. So we just launched uh, At Home with Family Handyman on streaming. So we're very excited about that. So taking a 70 plus year old brand that's very strong in print and very strong in web and, and now having this exciting um, move into streaming. Uh, Reader's Digest is doing unbelievably well socially with the uh, with the clips from the Jukin Library. That's been very exciting to watch. Um, you think about people are awesome and Reader's Digest. There's a great kinship. Reader's Digest audience loves pets. So we've seen incredible success on the social side for Reader's Digest. We actually have all of our content and production under one leader in the company. The the woman who uh, runs production for all of our video now is, has responsibility for our test kitchens. So we are absolutely harmonizing um, and uh, the the brands so that we don't think about them as this company versus that company. Uh, it's really what's the best place. We would never launch a Fail Army magazine, of course, <laughs> right? So it's really where you know where does the brand belong? What you know what what part of the media ecosystem? Um, is their audience. 
Um, and you've said before in this interview, you, you've focused on where the audiences are and you've mentioned social media, video quite a lot. Forming strategies for these platforms can be really quite tricky because they change so often. So how do you balance needing to stay on trend joining platforms like TikTok with also being at the mercy of the tech giants because they can turn that dial down as, as much or as often as they want? Yeah, I would say two two things run through us. One is make sure your content is good, okay? Because even when an algorithm changes, they typically still want to deliver the best content to their people. And we have very, very good content. The other is portfolio diversification. So don't be 100% dependent on TikTok or Facebook. Mm -hmm. And so we look at that. You know, we look at where our traffic and our monetization is coming from so that we can have a better sense of like, wow, if this one hits us hard, you know, and is down 10%, well then, okay, we can shift more over here. So for instance, as Snap has um, delivered much less of a monetization opportunity for us, we've leaned in even further with YouTube. And I think that's where your analytics comes in and really looking at it and understanding what's happening in the marketplace and having a team that knows how to pivot. Um, and I think people get excited about that empowerment because they're the, you know, it's people who are working, right? It's our social team that's coming back with the analysis and the recommendation and then making the shift. So I think you have to have both, you know, excellence in content and diversification because you're 100% right that algorithms change and there's a lot out of your control. So focus on what is in your control and, and move down that path. Um, related to that, apart from video, um, where do you see the biggest opportunities for TMB's brands this year? I, affiliate, you know, we're very, very bullish on affiliate. We're having, uh, we're on a June 30th fiscal year and we're having a great, great year on the affiliate, affiliate side. We think there's a tremendous more upside. I mean, this is where having uh, 25, 70 and 100 year old brands with a lot of authority you know, really, really matters online. So if Reader's Digest is going to recommend something to you, you're more prone to listen. Our affiliate content comes from our editors, not coming from marketers. So it really is in the belief of the editor that this is a good product or service to recommend to our audience. And I think that Family Handyman, if you think about it, most people would prefer to get a recommendation from a friend a la Family Handyman rather than a retailer. Um, if you're working at Family Handyman, you are actually handy. You're actually in the shop. So um, we're very bullish about that. And we're very bullish about video monetization. Um, I would say those are our two biggest areas. And we still see growth in our in our websites um, and, and in programmatic. The, um, the last couple of weeks, we've seen a lot from um, Google and uh, Microsoft's Bing about they're wanting to uh, sort of almost interrupt the user with these AI, uh, you know, if, if user is searching for a particular product recommendation, they want to surface that ahead of publisher websites. I suppose, do you see that as a threat or do you think people are going to come back to the trusted brands in the end rather than whatever the search engine happens to recommend at the top? You know, I think um, I was encouraged today. I read something that um, Microsoft said that they understand that they have to partner with publishers and pay them for their content. <laughs> Um, I think that it would be abusive, right, for the search, for the chat, the, the, the AI bots to write their, their text using all of our content, um, with no financial attribution. That, that would definitely, um, hurt all of us. I mean, anyone who creates content. Um, 
I, I think we're watching it. I think obviously the tests that have been done so far are not particularly impressive um, in terms of accuracy. So I think we have to watch, but we, we are watching and we think our brands matter. We think our excellence in content creation matters, but you have to pay a lot of attention, you know, when Google and Microsoft are going down a path that could change consumer behavior unless consumers reject it. Um, it could have a, it could definitely have a major impact on our business. Yeah. What would your advice be to other publishing leaders, perhaps struggling with digital transformation um, and actually looking to turn their businesses around? I think, um, you know, when you want to transform a business, you, you know, you first need a plan, which really has to start with um, people and, and culture. Uh, and uh, I think when you have the right people in the right places, and if you concentrate on having the right content for the audience, I think anything can be done. Um, but it does it does take time and it does take investment and and we you know we did we did have the investment to do that but it it does pay off so I always go back to you know do you have the right people um, and do you have the right content uh, and I think that that really is the path for, um, for for anybody to transform their business. Don't forget that the Publisher Podcast Awards shortlist is live at publisherpodcastawards.com and tickets are now on sale. We've seen an ecstatic response from the shortlisted entries. It is a fantastic catalogue of podcasts this year and the judges, I'm sure, are going to have just as much fun listening to them as we did shortlisting them. Two months to go. I know. And the Publisher Newsletter Awards will be opening this week on Wednesday, 1st of March. Uh, they will be open um, for entries in the forms will be available from publishernewsletters.com. That's publishernewsletters.com. But until next week, when we can come back and give you an update on how those entries are going, please do share the podcast as wide as you can. Don't forget to sign up to our newsletter at voices.media. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>